0: You know, I find my yoga practice over the years and still is evolving into a way to recognize my conditioned beliefs when I fall into patterns, when I'm just doing things out of rote habits. And happy baby pose is one that I can get into for a little bit and
1: realize that there was a me before all of this conditioning. Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover
0: sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace. We're only visiting. But leave your heart print with every step.
1: Today we're talking about from Tadasana to Shavasana, which sounds very much like the asana practice, and it is. But you'll see how it kind of encapsulates everything and that even if you're just starting out on the path and being called from the body to do the asana work, that you're not limited to just the body. We're never limited to any one of these layers. And so if you're newer or if you're still just engaged with the body level, maybe this conversation will open up ways to be more curious about working through the other layers while doing asana.
0: Yeah, because you know, when I was doing my yoga therapy training, we talked there were two different philosophies that they kept fluctuating back and forth with. And one was to get into the mind and the emotions through the body. And the other was to get into the body through the emotions and the mind. And I think that that kind of encapsulates all the different types of practices that we have, depending on what your step in to yoga is. You know, maybe you started with meditation and the way that you really experience things is through some more of the subtle layers. Or like me, I came because I wanted exercise. So I started with my body and how I could move it. And that led me on my path to stepping into the other koshas of noticing how I experienced different poses and what I felt when I was in them. And sometimes it was pure joy. And sometimes it was like, what is this over? Or why is it that I can never actually master this particular pose until I realized that that was just my ego speaking. I wasn't trying to master a pose, but to experience it. And that was one of the transitions that happened for me.
1: Mm -hmm. And in this whole sort of journey of self-study, we're talking about the koshas and, you know, there's all the different subtle body anatomy maps, including the chakras. That I used to say, you know, that this idea of self-study and figuring out where do I start and I don't, you know, what's, what layer am I working with? That we all know people who are so grounded that, you know, from their heart, from like their solar plexus down, they, you know, pay their bills on time. They have a steady job. They're in solid relationships. They are very, very grounded, but you talk to them and there's no sense of magic or lift or flight. And then, you know, people who from their heart up, they're just They're all off the ground, but, you know, there's no steady job. There's no steady relationship. There's no paying bills. There's just, you know, roaming and floating the ethers, but it's pure magic. And there's something really romantic and transcendent about that that is inviting and alluring. Um, But both of those are extremes. And to me, they feel disintegrated that what one might do is identify, oh, I'm that person. I, I know enough about myself to know that I am just floating through the ethers, I need a grounding practice. I need something that's going to allow me to inhabit those other energy centers so that I can live a more well-balanced, integrated life. And the same is true for those who are really grounded and you have, it may seem we've got all our shit together, but where's that sense of fancy and flight and imagination and creativity and magic? You know, So we do meditations and we do things that activate those, those aspects. And all of that can be done within an asana practice. And, you know, we start our practice in many
0: different ways. So we definitely have a sun salutation. We talked about having hatha yoga. We've talked about yin and yang. I often start my practice seated in, just like I am right now, in sukhasana, in easy pose. And it is a way for me to kind of feel more grounded and to find my mindfulness and my presence. But I was once challenged to not do that, to start my practice in mountain pose, standing and engaging with the earth. And I I have to tell you, Sherry, it kind of threw me off at first to think, oof, embracing change and doing it differently, but to stand and connect with the earth and my own personal power in the way that I view a mountain which is strong and solid and connected, just brought a whole different energy to the practice that wasn't, even though I think of mountain as being strong and energetic and connected and grounded, I didn't feel that when I was challenged to start in mountain pose. Hmm. I felt more like where I was wondering about all of the things that happened on a mountain. I started wondering about, you know, ice caps melting and the lifeblood of water flowing down through the sides of the mountain. And somehow I made the transition between all the movements of the mountain and the movements in my body. We talked a couple of episodes ago about the lungs and the tree of the lungs. So standing in mountain pose, and I was outside, so surrounded by trees, I just went from a physical practice to just being part of the forest. And oh. it just made that transition from this being a yoga practice, which it is, but to something that felt more lifestyle generated.
1: Mm, yes. Yes you know the if we're just thinking about tadasana and shavasana as bookends they're both the same shape one's lying on the ground one's standing up they're both in a shape of anatomical neutral and so the the term neutral was always interesting to me you know in in that more scientific place so this neutral but it's also the basic alignment for every other pose so the long spine, you know, rooted down through your feet, lifting up through the crown, that there are certain basic cues that can be used. I think it was Iyengar who said that Tadasana is, is in every pose in some form or another. And so there's here's this mountain that is also a container for, you know, flowing waters and nests and birds and animals and all sorts of other ecosystems that are on the mountain that we also embody, you know, these little ecosystems or just systems of our body, from the nervous system, digestive, I don't have to go through all the systems, you know, the systems of the body, Um, but that even as still as we are, we're breathing, we're animated by this wind, by the different winds that move us. But by the time we get to Shavasana, we are in that preparation for death. But what happens between Tadasana and Shavasana? It's a life. It's a practice. It is the exploration of self. It is a whole world within these two bookends that we then get to start again. So like even within the the Hindu mythologies of like, you know, we've got the Trimurti of the Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, creation, preservation, and destruction. But it's not just the three. It's not just, you know, we have beginning, middle, and end. We have a pause. We have a breath. We have a moment before we get to start again. So think about showing up on your mat every day, thinking about showing up to your practice every day, That happens after the pause of endings. We are starting this new beginning. So keeping it fresh, keeping it, you know, uh, life is every new moment is is a fresh opportunity to practice, to start again, to get to know yourself better. And so we start in anatomical neutral. We start in this mountain pose that has stories attached to it, that stories that come from mythology, but also it can be seen as the beginning of a heroic journey. Now, we're not going to go through the hero's journey, the heroine's journey, the heroic journey, whatever we might call it and and feel the name of. Go back to season two if you want to go through the, the actual journey of the hero's journey. We call it the heroic journey to kind of make it gender neutral without without making it neutral neutral. <laughs> so just kind of little seeds to plant as we're having this conversation. You know, there's mythology, there's story, there's activation and experience And then there's, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves as we're moving through these practices.
0: Yeah. And then the the flavor of story, I was reading about myths, and I really, really loved the mountain pose myth, right? It begins with, well, again, um, I've looked at this a number of times, and this is a story about the Himalayan mountains. Although when I go in and kind of Google how you pronounce it, they do it the way I used to say, Himalayan. So whatever they are, we know what those mountains are. (laughs) And however we pronounce it is okay. But it was once populated by wandering sages and yogis who felt that these mountain caves were so peaceful and the solitude that was on this huge mountain was a perfect place to meditate and to experience self. And so what they talk about is that mountain pool is is kind of crucial for life. It is the metaphor of the life cycle that we just continuously go through beginnings and endings. We are birthed, we live, and we pass away and we die. And so they talk about this being the endless cycle of birth and death and very similar to the heroic journey that you were just referring to Sherry we can have a a massive heroic journey of major proportions and you know immense life changes or everyday maybe we have a challenge that we work through that is just this little cycle of life and death and as a teacher standing in front of a room watching people in mountain pose, it was so interesting to me to see the different expressions of pop people showed up in mountain pose. Sometimes it felt like it was like so strong and they were holding every bit of tension that there was not ease within the pose. It was almost like you said, mountain is in every pose. So I got the impression my impression, not, that, not what is necessarily what people were showing, but my impression was because it's in every pose, let's get it right, right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So it felt like there was a little bit of stress held within that mountain pose until we could all take a collective deep breath and let it leave and find the ease in something that had so much strength. And that was maybe the birth of our practice. It was our beginning and a time to kind of let go of the stuff we carried into our practice, whether we're in a studio or in our home practice, to let go of all of that and leave it behind and to become present, focused and grounded, just like the mountain.
1: You know, if you imagine a mountain and I'm just imagining a mountain with a, a peak, not so much a flat top or a mesa, but like a peak, that it the wide bottom that grounding. If you kind of look at the mountain, it could also feel like a body. You know that you've got this sort of wide bow- bottom for for your base and for your foundation. And then as you rise up, it sort of narrows to the top. And you know there we have that that space of maybe enlightenment when you get beyond the peak. There's what else is beyond the peak? Uh, but as a place to start, as a place that is feeling like something tangible that we can work with, that we can go from this mountain and have a journey. So, you know, the, the heroic journey in a yoga practice may not take the order of the the heroic journey as it's e. written by Maureen Murdoch or by um, Joseph Campbell for the hero's journey, but elements of it will arise as they need. So they say if, you know, you'll feel the stretch where your body needs to feel it. If your body is tight in a certain place, you may feel a stretch in a different place if someone's not tight in that space. So we're getting what we need. So we've got in the hero's journey, the heroic journey, there's an aspect of you know, mentorship. Well, first you leave something that's comfortable. So we leave this Tadasana. We leave this space of you know, home, of comfort, of beginnings. Once upon a time, there was a mountain and then we move from there. And so we're gonna experience discomfort, trials and tribulations. We're gonna meet mentors and teachers along the way. Does this sound like a practice at all? We're going to have to overcome challenges. We're going to learn lessons. We're going to go through all of the things we're going to go through in our entire lives, but that's the, that's the macrocosm. So we go from the impermanence of one single breath, an inhale and an exhale. That's an entire universe, an entire life in that cycle of breath. And then we have the cycle of a minute, of an hour, of a day that has a beginning, middle, and an end. It has the creation preservation, and then it's over and there's a pause before we move on. But the big one is from Tadasana to Shavasana, from birth to death, then the whole life, that's all that's happening. But then in our practice, it can almost feel the same. It's, it's a cycle. It's, it's an entire life in a practice. We get to journey from home, have our experience, come back, and then let it all go in Shavasana, which is really our preparation for death. And so we lie there and notice how hard it is to let go. You know, you're the floor is holding you up. You've, you know, prepared for it in a certain way. So our lives and yeah, I'm reading right now two different books, Tantra Illuminated and The Untethered Soul. The reason I'm saying this is because I'm going to conflate the two because I'm reading them at the same time in Tantra Illuminated. He goes through the the koshas, but in a different language. He talks about the body and how, what it is to identify with the body and what it is to over-identify with the body. And we know in our culture here, we totally fucking over-identify with the body. You know, think about your, how many different, you know, weight loss things are coming in your reels or, you know, different diets or exercises. And this is going to be the thing. You're going to look great in your bikini, blah, 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 whatever, all that bullshit. But we are the same culture that hides death. So we're so concerned with looking young and feeling young and being fit and all of this, but we're going to die one day. The decay, the, the ending, it, it's inevitable. And so if we ignore that and only focus on the body, then that's, that's going to be a problem. It's going to be hard to kind of let all that go. So we work with Shavasana. We work with the energy of endings if we allow ourselves to balance, we can identify with our bodies. Why not? We have bodies. Why would we not want to identify with that? Same thing with thoughts. We don't try to eradicate thoughts with meditation. We try to manage them. So let's come into balance with how we see our bodies and allow our asana practice to be the tool through which we work to to be okay, to, to recognize the reality and impermanence of all things.
0: I remember the first time I went for a really challenging hike on the mountain, it was long and there was a lot of uphill and a lot of switchbacks, just like that journey, right? Sometimes we're climbing up hills. Sometimes we get a little switchback that gives us a rest. And I remember that after climbing, and this was probably a 15 mile hike, it was a long day and I had never done it before. So I'm climbing and I'm climbing. First, it starts out. So the journey started out in this beautiful open meadow and I'm thinking, oh, this is gonna be a piece of cake. (laughs) I I like this journey. Look at that beautiful meadow. And I walked for about a mile through the meadow and then started to climb. The trail started to climb and it got extremely challenging, like climbing on rocks and doing all kinds of crazy feats of challenging myself. And I climbed and I climbed and I was exhausted. And I would stop and huff and puff and think, can I really get through this journey? And then I came to this meadow and this flat. And I was like, yes, I did it. Oh, my gosh, I've made it all the way to the flat. And I stopped and I took a break and my guides were with me. And I was like, we made it. And we rested for a couple of minutes. And they're like, "Okay, well, let's go. And guess what? I didn't make it anywhere except to that very first (laughs) stopping point. And this happened over and Mm -hmm. over again, all day long. These really strenuous climbs on the mountain, reminding me so much in my brain as my brain was thinking, when is this going to be over? And I am not prepared to be, you know, taking such a strenuous hike really became my own personal metaphor for challenges that I've had in my life. This arguing in my head, I am not prepared. I don't know how to do this thing. Do I have the strength? Do I have the stamina to get from one place to the other? This physical, you were talking about the koshas before, this physical challenge of this 15-mile hike in one day brought me from what was going on in my body to... The emotional and mental part, am I ready for challenges? Have I I prepared enough? Do I know? Can I make it to the end? Should I turn back and go back to a place of ease and comfort? But once you step onto the journey, there's no place else to go. You have to follow it. So throughout these switchbacks, I hit three places where I thought I finally made it to the top. But I had not. (laughs) But when I did get to the summit, it was, I was filled with joy. I was like, I actually did this. I overcame this challenge. I was happy and excited. And the view was breathtaking. Again, coming back to the koshes and noticing that the first thing when I got up there and I could look all around at where I had come from and what that journey really put me through I just had this nice easeful breath like "Ah." I made it and my breath started to equalize after that climb because I was huffing and puffing by the time I got to the top but as my breath settled and I was able to sit back all of the challenges that went through my body and my mind arguing that I was not prepared for my journey all started to ease. And I realized that all I needed to do was one thing. I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, until I made it all the way to the top.
1: And now you know you can do it. So that's a seed that was planted and it hits every kosher. I had a similar experience doing the Boston, New York AIDS ride on my bike. My bike had been collecting cat hair and laundry for years. I re- used to ride it to work. And then when I stopped working at Wetlands, it just kind of sat there. A friend of mine said, hey, you want to do the Boston, New York AIDS ride? I said, all right. It's a 300-mile bike ride. I had never run, ridden a century in my life. I had never done that kind of thing. Um, and I also didn't know how to use my gears very well. So I, had, I didn't know how to use a granny gear, and I couldn't use the other... The hard gear, I always kept it in the middle of that three ring one. I still don't know the language for it. And on that first day, the first time I did the ride three times, the first time I did it, they mismapped it and it became a 320 mile bike ride. Um, And the last nine miles of the first day was, or the last nine miles was a climb on the first day. And the pit stop was in the middle of the climb. And I got a flat tire on my bike. (laughs) I didn't know how to change it. And no one was riding by me. So I climbed that like four and a half, first four and a half miles with a flat tire before someone helped me fix it. Now they had something called a sag truck that you could get in if you were, you know, too far behind or it was getting dark or whatever. And I refused to take the sag truck. And that first ride, there was also a hurricane. We had to ride through a hurricane. We had our lunch sitting under an 18 wheeler that was parked at the pit stop. It was unbelievable, but that was, that was before I started practicing yoga. And so it it just, it was the beginning of understanding really what mind over matter was. You know, this Manamaya Kosha over the Anamaya Kosha, that it wasn't so much one over the other, mm. but bringing in the fortitude of the power of our thoughts, the power of our mind, the power of our intentions, and the power of a bag of fucking gork, good old raisins and peanuts. Yeah, and even when
0: you think you're at the end, you're not. Because when I was sitting up on the mountain at that summit and thinking, wow, Teresa, you did an amazing job patting myself on the back and I'm thinking, and the rest of this is downhill. Well, that hill isn't necessarily easier just because it's downhill. You know, people always say, oh, it's all downhill from here. And sometimes that's interpreted as, oh, everything's going to get really bad because it's all downhill from here. I'm always thinking, hey, when you get on, when you get all the way to the top of the mountain, downhill is the easy ride. That should be like, yeah, now we're sold downhill from now. So I guess it really depends on how you're going to interpret things that are said. But like this life cycle and our journeys continuously flowing from beginning, middle and end and starting over, the downhill journey was a journey all of its own. It wasn't necessarily easier than the uphill. It was just different.
1: And depending on how you're going down, if your knees are not great and you're going down, sometimes coming down the stairs is harder for me than going up the stairs if my knees are otsy. But if you're going down on a sled or you're going down on a bike or something on a paved thing, like gets the downhill. It's like everything else. But so you said it wasn't the end, but everything has a microcosm and a macrocosm. It was the end of one part of that journey. It wasn't the end of the up and down the mountain. But it was the end of something fell away to have that sense. And there was a new beginning on that next part of the journey. So it's very curious to look within one big journey, how many little adventures you get to have and how many beginnings, middles and ends actually are cycling through the bigger ones. And, you know, in yoga, from, shavas- from
0: uh, Tadasana to Shavasana, from mountain to corpse pose, We have so many different opportunities to get into shapes in our body as ways of either experiencing the physical body or experiencing the emotions or the breath. I know that sometimes when I'm moving through twists, specifically to my right, I'll come to this part where I almost feel like the twist takes my breath away, like I'm like... (gasps) And every time I get that sensation when I am in practice and I'm like, <gasps> and there's an edge that I, that calls for me to stop, that taking away of my breath is my signal, my personal signal, that this isn't a physical stop. This isn't that my body is injured there or that there's something that is limited in my range of motion. There's a story at that <gasps> that needs to be explored, that I can sit with, that I can rest with. And I often think about myself like being afraid. When you're afraid, you're like, you take that inhale and it kind of stays there. That is the sensation. I don't know what the story is yet. Somewhere in here, my body is going to tell me a story or it's going to process it without ever revealing what the story is for me. But I do know that every time I come to that part, requested or challenged, however you want to look at it, to stop and explore. And it's one of the things that taught me that there are many poses that I can get to what I would consider the fullest expression or wanting to go deeper into a pose. I'm using air quotes for people who don't see me wanting to go deeper or the fullest expression, and that's a great journey. That's a journey all to itself. But sometimes I find that my edge is not that deep into a pose. And even though I might be capable, if that's the right word, of showing something that looks like the cueing that I'm offering or the cueing that I've been taught, I might stop way short just to learn the stories of my body, to let my body help me to process an emotion or an event that is written into the fabric of my form or an issue in my tissues.
1: So specifically, as we're moving through some of these challenges, what they may look like, you know, if you are coming into Tadasana and you can feel that space of steadiness and ease and find that stira balance, and then maybe you move through a few sun salutations. So notice your breath. I know that as I post-menopause, I have high blood pressure. So my breath in a few sun salutations gets a little more labored. So I have to back off a little bit more than I would have 10 years ago. You know, so there's, there's a learning there. Every time I've tried like crow pose, we've talked about crow, crow. I mean, it's an incredible core, low to the ground balance experience that sometimes I can pop up with ease, not very often. But when I do, I'm like, oh, there it is. That comes from practice. That comes from the repetition.
0: Yeah, crow is a hard pose. I have the same thing. I always have a fear that I'm going to fall over and bang my face. There was always Always pillows. Always always pillows 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 in front. Yep, just in case. And then, of course, you know, being a body worker, I'm always afraid that I'm going to hurt my wrist by trying to balance my whole body on my working tools. And maybe that's a really great reason to have happy baby pose in our practice. Right? The, the opposite, instead of like trying to balance on our hands with our knees resting on our elbows, just balanced up like a crone or like a, sorry, <laughs> a crown, not a croon. I am a crone. Oh my goodness. I went from happy baby pose to crone all in one sentence. No mistake there. But in happy baby pose, we get to lay on our backs with our feet in the air, hands holding on with the joy of one of those first experiences as a baby when we first realized, hey, I have feet, a toes. We got all these little toes hanging out there, and there's nothing that makes me feel uh, a little bit more joy in my practice than rocking back and forth in happy baby pose to just use that as a pose to come back to the roots and. You know, I find my yoga practice over the years and still is evolving into a way to recognize my conditioned beliefs when I fall into patterns, when I'm just doing things out of rote habits rather than really being mindful and deciding. And happy baby pose is one that I can get into for a little bit and realize that there was a me before all of this conditioning.
1: There was a me. Oh, wait, Wait, you got to pause there because that I think is everything in a nutshell. There was a me, say that again. There was a me before that, there was conditioning, and that's the baby, right? That is the beginner's mind. That is exactly, that is so profound and so beautiful, and why I think many of us do this work. You know, I mean, happy baby brings that joy. We need, again, Mm stirring and sukha, the effort and the ease that there's satisfaction in in the ending of that one switchback and then continuing on, knowing that you still had effort to to put into the world and that breath at the apex, when you got to the top, that breath of satisfaction, we don't get that if we don't do the crow pose and only do the happy baby pose. They They are partners, they're in relationship, they bring the effort and the satisfaction of going beyond what we think we can do and allowing our minds to, you know, let go of some of those limiting beliefs. But then happy baby is that reminder that they are limiting beliefs and that there's a place to start that is not, you know, necessarily where we think it is. That's beautiful. Fucking A. We have
0: so many different ways to, and we're just still talking about asana, you know, we're, I shouldn't say still just, we're talking about asana, but in a very broad sense we have a set of different types of poses to choose from depending on what i want my personal experience to be in that day maybe it's a sun salutation maybe i'm just sitting in a yin pose for 5 minutes or choosing something some other type of practice either hatha or legs up there's just so many different ways to step in another pose yeah. that i feel is a simple pose for me but has so much depth every time I get into it is child's pose. You think of it as I'm on the ground and I'm leaning forward, I'm putting my head on the ground, you know, just like a child, just outside playing, really getting connected to the earth. But it also feels like such a reverent pose, this bowing to Mother Gaia, bowing to the earth and resting with knees and heads supported by the earth element, by this planet that we inhabit. We just did a a lot of work with Earth Day, this planet that is so kind to us that gives us our water and our food and our plant life. So, you know, we have the challenging poses that are physically challenging. We have some poses that I don't find very physically challenging, but love them for the emotional and spiritual connection that they have to offer me
1: then someone might come into the room and I've had plenty of students who cannot do child's pose, hurts their knees, hips are tight, quads are tight, cannot get into child's pose. So we, we bolster with blankets behind the legs. And even that, you know, I'd say, don't do it. No pose is worth compromising a body part. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that reverence piece, yeah. where do we find reverence when we are in physical discomfort? Where do we find that? So each one of these poses, whether it's crow pose, or happy baby pose or child's pose, trikanasa, we can be in triangle, we can be in a headstand, whatever it is, we have the ability and the opportunity to work through the different layers of our koshas, even though we're in a physical posture. So whether it's the breath that is being taken away or deepening or somehow finding a different cadence and, and rhythm, or if it's the energy, certain things bring up a certain vitality, and other things may draw us down and allow us to to go deeper and a little more soothing. And then there's the thoughts that plague us. It's like, what the fuck, I can't do this? Why can't I do this? Or, oh my God, I got to do it, this is really cool. Whatever the thoughts are, you know, positive, negative, indifferent, any kind, neutral, whatever, that they factor into the Manamaya Kosha and whatever they are, they're gonna take us away from the moment. So how do we draw back and what is the wisdom that we gather from all of this data. And then as we're lying there, you know, inviting bliss into our experience through complete relaxation and no effort whatsoever, you know, we still have to prepare for Shavasana the way that we, and I started saying this before when I was like, we ignore death in our culture, but that life in some ways, if we allow ourselves to know that death is at some point, it can help us live a more fuller life you know, in each moment, it's part of the preparation. You know, my parents left us a binder with all the people to call with all of like, they had taken care of their cemetery plots. They did all of that so that when they did die, we could just grieve. We didn't have to worry about all the effort that it was going to do logistically. They prepared. So think about preparing for Shavasana. We put blankets on because we're going to get cold. We put sometimes a bolster under our, our legs or blocks under our heels or somehow we you know put a we 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 make ourselves super super supported so that we can release sometimes just enough to lie on the ground in tadasana without any support the blanket is nice cuz you will get cold you know faster than you think you will cool down but we prepare for it so all of this is life is pre- preparation for death but it doesn't have to be morbid it can be joyous it can be a celebration it can be a daily journey, adventure, you know, but that's again, Manamaya, how, what's the mindset around that?
0: In the myth of Asana, when they talk, uh, when they write about Shavasana, there's a line that I really loved. And it says, as Krishna explains to Arjunu in the Bhagavad Gita, the physical body is the clothing of the soul, which needs to be changed when it's worn out. And, there was that reminder that we're in a life cycle, that when we consider that death, it went on to say, you know, when we consider that we are not, that we have a mortality to us, that perhaps that gives us a sense of purpose that can inspire us to make good use of our time here on earth. And, you know, so, there's a whole story. It's a great book. If anybody wants to read it, The Myths of Asana, there's a great story about, you know, what it is to prepare for death and how we do that by just whatever practices, whatever morals, whatever religion, whatever precepts that we like is to bring them into our life and fully embrace how we go through our life, but not assuming that we will never leave this earth to use that p- piece of information to live our best life while we're here
1: yes oh that's beautiful too yeah I, I used to think of shavasana as the great equalizer you know you could take a restorative class you could take a really you know hot a hot yoga class Nashtanga class some really fierce class you could take a yin class it doesn't matter what your practice is Everyone at Shavasana, when we come out of it, it's we've allowed our nervous system to rest. We've given it that rest and restore. We've come back to this parasympathetic place where we have let everything go and we get to start again. So we all kind of come out of Shavasana with a a little drunk. I shouldn't say that. We're, not all of us, obviously not all of us. But I can't just always say it's me, 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 me. It's, it's an experience we have. And as a teacher, I've seen it. You know, as a collective, the individual in the collective, uh, the individuals in the room collectively experience Shavasana, sometimes Reiki on the shoulders, sometimes, you know, holding the space, you know, with Reiki in the front of the room or, you know, just sending out love. Uh, but there's a, a sense in the room at the end, no matter how, what the energy was in the beginning, could have felt like a cocktail party, could have felt like, you know, a, a meditation retreat, it could have felt like anything. But at the end, there's a sense of, there's the exhale, there's the exhale. We were Let's looking for the exhale before, yeah,
0: and now we have it.
1: Yeah, right <laughs> you know, somewhere
0: along my journey in yoga, and i've I've said this myself, and in Shavasana, I heard that this is the practice of being and not doing, and I've said those words, but they feel so small when I really think about Shavasana. Yes, it is a practice of just being and letting go of everything but it's so much more than that and I think the challenge sometimes in a class is to say this is corpse pose this is a way for us to embrace our own mortality to know and to learn from the fact that we live in cycles whether it's the cycle of the day and corpse pose is the ending of my day before I go to sleep so I wake up refreshed The next morning to start a new cycle or just really being okay like your parents were with planning everything to know that someday we're going to leave this earth and so we have practices that help to prepare us for just that so like you said you know uh, shavasana can be this experience of a deep sense of relaxation and release like done was my practice it was really challenging and now I get to rest and let go and feel connected to the earth my whole entire body is being supported <laughs> by a hard surface beneath me but sometimes and you have shared with us one of your friends who like and I've had people they get up and they leave before shavasana because they find it boring and that it doesn't really have any value to it, or that they just can't stay still. I think right? it's a waste so, of time. It's a
1: waste of time. Don't understand the science behind it because there is science behind it too. Yeah.
0: Oh, I can't wait to hear that.
1: <laughs> well, no, just about the nervous system. About oh, yeah, the just calming calm of the nervous down. system. Yeah. You know, it's nothing fancy or magical or or mysterious. You know, this is what happens, and if you're going to take that, you know, agitated energy into the into the world. Um, you're missing a crucial part. You know, as a junior used to say, there is no asana without shavasana. Maybe it's our time to, you know,
0: connect with our compassion and our wisdom and to be able for me to just let go of all of the stories and my ego that just go on and on. And I think that's where the practice of doing nothing came into my thoughts. Mm -hmm. It was to let all of that go. Also, probably in how we started, that sometimes it's hard to talk about death. I guess as a teacher on the front mat, maybe I had a little bit of discomfort with saying, hey, this is corpse pose. We're practicing for
1: death. Never had any problem with that. (laughs) In fact, I took a certain amount of joy in that (laughs) because it, it just felt real, you know, and it is hard to let go. And it is a practice of it's more than rest. It's more than non-being or non-doing. It just is. And I think for a lot of people that is challenging. They're the same people for whom it's challenging to meditate, for whom it's challenging to find any stillness. But if we can allow ourselves to just let it go and not worry about anything and not do anything, but the mind is still working because actually we're not dead. You know, We're not going to have that experience until we ultimately have that experience. Now, when I moved here, I moved here from Manhattan in 2002, but legitimately and completely in 2003. And I found a yoga studio here in Yardley and there weren't many, there was just the one. And it was great, there were some great teachers and it was really fun. It wasn't New York and I was still judging everything against what I could have gotten or done in New York City, <laughs> which is no longer a truth. But there was one teacher they brought in as a, as a sub. She was a sub, I only had her twice. And the same thing happened each time. I gave her the benefit of the doubt the first time. Then I realized she just didn't particularly have this hard skill or learn this. She taught the yoga class and it was only a yoga studio. It was a wellness thing. And we went into Shavasana. And, you know, I began hearing people rustling, but I just assumed they were people who needed to leave for Shavasana. And after a really uncomfortable, I couldn't fully inhabit my Shavasana because I was so distracted by the fact that Life, things were happening and I wasn't knowing what was happening. And so I opened my eyes at one point and everyone was gone and the teacher came over and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I was waiting for you to bring me out of Shavasana. You know, that I've never been in a class where a teacher just left us there to come out whenever we were ready. Or, I mean, if you're going to do that, say, stay as long as you like. And when you feel ready, come out of it. That's a cue that I would be able to get behind. Nothing brought us into Shavasana. And I'm just sitting there fucking waiting for her to bring me out. Didn't even think it was a thing. So the second time I should have taken that as the cue. But again, I was there much longer than everyone else. And I, was, I said to her, you know, I'm so accustomed to teachers actually consciously bringing us out of Shavasana because without that, there's no way to go deep. There's no way to fully surrender, knowing that there's no one there to help bring you back you know and so i needed i needed what is it resuscitation or is it i feel like a young frankenstein it's alive it's alive you know <laughs> um, you need to I be need liberated to from that de- <laughs> that corpse pose right because to truly let go you need to trust that the space is being held and i there was no trust there after that Uh, And I never saw her again. I don't even remember her name, but, but I think that there's certain skills that are hard skills that you can learn about how to, you know, lead a yoga class. Then, you know, you bring what you bring. Yeah. So that brings
0: us in a full circle of cycles from Tadasana to Shavasana and the whole freedom that we have between the two to bring into our practices the things that nurture and nourish us or bring into our practice the things that are going to challenge, right? I remember hearing, you know, the pose that is the most challenging and the one that I don't want to do is probably the one I need to do the most. So, you know, climbing to the top of that mountain was something that I clearly did not want to do that day. But when I did and I accomplished it, I was, I left transformed i left different knowing that i could depend on myself and those are some of the things i think that i found in my practice and the freedom between those two things and obviously neither one is a is positional i've also been in classes where they start with shavasana and then come you know come through i don't know that i like that so much but it is a thing anyway to go through and have the freedom to create this personal practice with the things in my toolbox that best serve me on any given day brings me through whatever that full cycle of birthing the practice, coming through all the stages of it, and letting it have the natural ending of a cycle or Mm -hmm. the practice for death.
1: What you said about the satisfaction and that being transformed going on and finishing that If I were to practice handstand again in my life, it would have to be with a teacher. And that would be the reason I would want to do it to see, you know, what is it that kept me from doing it all these years? Was it mental? Was it fear? Was it physical? Do I just not have the strength or ability to do it? Um, Is it a, a limiting belief that I've been telling myself for years that I'm not a gymnast, I'm not a dancer, I'm not, I don't do those things is what is that? And so that's still part of it. It's no longer a dominant part of the way I think about what I want to do with my practice, but when it does come up, I think that would be the reason I would try practicing again, because now even just standing in tree pose, that's enough. It's enough to fill the, the need I have to explore through my body, to touch into all those points that are transformational you know, and it doesn't have to be something as big as a handstand, though that might be fun. I don't know. Um, It can be something as simple as, you know, standing in Tadasana and doing a body scan and sensing, you know, where the different layers of the koshas, where the energy centers of the chakras, where the meridians, where the organs, where all of these things are in conversation with my consciousness, with my awareness, so that I can see these patterns and begin to begin to play a little bit more deeply.
0: Yeah. In, in my journey to the top of that mountain and other extreme physical challenges that I have, I have to say that I probably wouldn't have done them by myself. I was with family members who were supporting, encouraging, and were with me every step of of this hike. They were there to say, it's okay if we stop and rest, but they were also there to say, come on, it's time for us to keep moving along. So, you know, this is, although I talked initially about the journey I had with myself, this physical body and its challenges and the self-talk and being excited to get to the end, the other part of it is the support of others, the support of community, and although personal practice is really important. And we've talked about that before, so I'm not going to go back there since we're coming up to time. But also the community and the collective, who are the people that we have around us in these different practices that support, courage, teach, help, and that we can lean into when we need that additional support.
1: And a bag of nuts doesn't help, doesn't hurt.
0: A bag of nuts doesn't doesn't
1: hurt. A a bag of
0: nuts is always welcome.
1: (laughs) All right. So next week, we're going to be talking about the progression of practice, you know, as, you know, what it looks like and feels like as we move along the path. And these are just, we're, we're, you know, dropping the breadcrumbs along the way. And because everything is impermanent, expect the birds to come and eat those breadcrumbs. So you might have to drop your own um, and maybe get a new loaf, bake your own, whatever you need to do. But again, another lovely time with you. (laughs) Glad you came we
0: are glad you are here. And hopefully after listening, maybe just one or two or all of the different things that you have in your private and your personal practice, or the next time you're in a group class, maybe this has opened up your thoughts and your emotions to step into those poses with a fresh lens. Until next time.
1: Until next time. And we also, Yoga Fest is coming up. I think this might be the last drop before Yoga Fest. So um, May 20th, buy your tickets. I'll put the link in the show notes and it'll be in the newsletter. So if you're not on our newsletter, you're missing something. It's a little storytelling. It's, they're fun. So sign up for our newsletter, get the information, get your Yoga Fest tickets. It's a full day of everything. You don't want to miss it.
0: And you can get that newsletter by going to the homepage on anecdotalanatomy.com and just scroll down to the bottom. There's a place for you to enter that email address that you want us to drop these little notes into your inbox. So head on
1: over there. Now, until next time. (laughs) 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 Bye-bye.